take a moment as I'm preparing here, but uh, take a moment and think about the most awful person you can imagine. Uh, perhaps he's a politician. Perhaps he's a, uh, an, an ancient character of some sort. But the most awful, wicked, unimaginably depraved man or woman that you can imagine. Now think about that person for a moment. Prepare that person's visually in your mind. And I want to remind you of something. God can save that person. And use that person for his glory. So what we're going to talk about this morning is the essence of the good news of God that comes from a living and real God that is powerful. I've been studying with my sons as Moses has been imparting to the people of Israel as he is sending off Joshua, his final sayings. And so much of what Moses said to those people is, he is a real God. You heard his voice from the clouds. You felt the fire of the thunder on the mountaintops. He spoke to you. He has given you his word. People of God, you have felt his presence in your life. He has changed your heart. He has done the impossible. He has made you new. And this is the powerful God we're talking about today. So everything that's going on in this world is an anthill to our great God. So let's pray for my sake so that I can prepare my heart, but also for yours that you may hear with me as a family, that we may do this together to hear the word of God. So let's pray. Lord, I could not save myself. Lord, I cannot save anyone else. Lord, I could not change my heart. Lord, I cannot change my sins. I cannot change my skin color. I cannot change my faults, my failings, my inabilities. Lord, I cannot change any of those things. But Lord, in you, Lord, by your power, Lord, you made me new. Lord, you changed my heart. You made me a part of a new people. And Lord, I cannot in my own ability stand here and preach the word of God perfectly. I cannot. Oh, Holy Spirit, how I need your help with such serious things. Lord, the proclamation, the voicing of Scripture, such serious things things. I rest in you. I rely in you as I have always done since you have saved me. Nothing has changed. Lord, I still cling to the anchor that is my God here now. And Lord, I pray you help us as a family now as the word is spoken that Lord, we may all hear and glorify your name in the hearing of the word of God. In your sweet name, I pray, Lord Jesus, by your blood and your mercy and your grace. Amen. So last week, as um, has been summarized, we spoke on the biblical view of race. We spoke on what the world's view of race, how they have taken the beauty of God, the multicolored stained glass of God's creation, uh, of diversity, of his creative genius seen in the tones and eyes of humanity. And the, the worldview has said, let's take those things and use them to separate. 
those things which is meant to illuminate the beauty of God. And then we discussed the problems with the social justice movement within the church, specifically, how it is fraught with errors and how it, in its core and in its essence, merges itself and binds to worldly philosophies and, in essence, loses the core of the gospel message. I cannot give a gospel message to people who are being told that their sins are not their fault. I cannot do it. So today, let's talk about what the gospel message is. And does the Bible address our current situation? Is the scriptures sufficient to handle the things that are going on in our world today? What is the gospel message? And what is the gospel solution to racism, prejudice, and injustice? Is there injustice? Yes. Let's not pretend there isn't. Can I personally pay for it? No. Can you pay for it? No. You can't. I don't care how much you do for the rest of your life. You cannot pay for the injustices and the sins that you have committed against other people. This fact is essential to the gospel, isn't it? Can I adequately correct and repair my sins? Can I repair my father's sins? No, but Jesus can. And Jesus did, didn't he? Late 1800s historian Christopher Dawson, he wrote this, and I found it profound. He said, if the failure of modern civilization is directly related to its secularism and its loss of spiritual values, it is useless to set our hopes and remedies, however drastic, which ignore this fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is spiritual. And the church cannot merge itself to pragmatic solutions that do not address spiritual problems. We have, as a church, we have, as a gospel-believing people of God, the only answer for this world. Ray Orland said it this way. He said, the only answer to one culture is another culture. And here we are, looking around this room now, a different culture, a different race, a unique breed set apart. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16, Paul says it this way. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body throughout the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The only solution to racism Injustice and prejudice is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone are the barriers broken down, whatever barrier man may create. Because, brothers and sisters, when this barrier may pass, Lord help us, may it pass, there will be another one. Do we see this enacted in Scripture? Do we see this truth brought out in the Word of God? Absolutely. What about the book of Philemon? 
What was Paul's solution to a young slave and his slave master? Did Paul uh, attack the system of slavery? No, let's see what he did. Philemon, verses 8 to 16, he says this. Paul speaking to his, uh, to his dear brother, he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be a compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a little while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, no longer as your slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Did Paul say, brother, you know this system is wrong. Haven't you read the scriptures? Did he say, brother, this has gone on too long. As a matter of fact, we need to go back and repair some of these old wounds. Did he grab Onesimus and say, I feel your pain, it is not right? Did he pull him aside and empathize with him on his pains and sufferings? Or did he come to him and say, yes, I hear your pains, but let me tell you about Jesus. Did he give him the gospel? Or did he give him politics? We see the gospel here. Look how Onesimus becomes a brother. A brother. A consistent Christian worldview is the only solution to these problems. Any alternative cannot provide a rational basis for the inherent objective value of human life. Nothing else can. What else do we see here in this little section? We see love in the form of mercy and grace. The gospel lived out in love. We see service calling out to Onesimus, go and serve now. Calling out to Philemon, hey, he comes back to serve you and now you serve me. We're a family. We serve each other in Christ. We see forgiveness. Don't we see forgiveness? Onesimus forgives. Philemon forgives. For one who sins, there is repentance. For the one who is injured, there is forgiveness. And if all repented and if all forgave, there is no racism. There is no more prejudice. There is no more Injustice. That fixes it. Find something where that doesn't fix it. Repentance and forgiveness. Done. And finally, we see the abasement of his rights for the sake of the name of Christ. Philemon, dear brother, put aside your injury. The Lord has been glorified. Brother and sister, what rights are you holding on to? What frustrations, pains, hurts in your heart are you holding on to? Put them aside. You have not been wounded as much as Jesus on the cross. Let's put them aside for the sake of love 
and for the gospel. We, in this gospel, we are removed from darkness and brought into his marvelous light. Didn't many people expect in Jesus' day? Didn't they expect him to dismantle this political system? But God sent Jesus to set people free from the domain of darkness, not Rome, and to transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son. I'm not here to fix America. I'm not here to fix the world. I'm here to tell you about the better one. This one is going to be wrapped up with the heavens like a scroll. I'm talking about a better place. John chapter 3, verse 16, you know this verse. The Greek says it this way. It says, whoever believes into him. Not whoever believes in him, but in Greek it says, whoever believes into him shall not perish. Real belief takes us into Christ. We want to escape the racism, the prejudice, the hatred, the partiality, the selfishness, the abuse of this world. We want to help others escape that as well, don't we? Then I don't take them to a better government. I take them to a good and holy God. Samuel Say, uh, who I have found to be profound here as of late, I enjoyed reading him. He said it this way. He said, the most liberating invent in history for black people isn't the end of the slave trade, the end of segregation, or the end of colonialism. The most liberating event in history for black people and all sinners is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Does it fill your soul? Don't you want to go to heaven now and just shout and sing? The world is offering reparations. That money will only be the yacht that will glide many into hell by their greed and their selfishness. I can't repair it. We, as the church, as the people of God, we offer the infinitely valuable gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ. Are we a gospel church? We can't fix everybody, but brothers and sisters, this is the field that God has given us, isn't it? These are the people that God has given us. This is the church that God has given us. Look around you. These are the brothers and sisters that God has sovereignly brought into your life. So this is the field here that we plow. I'm not concerned necessarily with what every other place does. But we must look at our own church and say this, are we a gospel church? When the doctrine is clear and the gospel is lived, culture within the church, it is beautiful. And the church will be powerful. There are no shortcuts. We must live this out and intentionally now. Culture without doctrine is weak. Doctrine without culture is absolutely pointless. You can know every 
single passage and theology of Scripture, and you could have your systematic theology down to a T, but if you don't get out of your room and out of your house and love somebody, it is wasted. Francis Schaeffer said it this way, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the earlier church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, which the world can see. By the grace of God, it must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and it must be there. The truth of biblical doctrine is essential to authentic Christianity. Do we also accept that the beauty of human relationships is equally essential? Brothers and sisters, the gospel is not just a theory or a theorem. The gospel creates something new. That's what it does. The gospel-centered churches are living proof that the good news is true. We are to be living proof that the good news is true. The beauty of human relationships in the church is proof to the world that the gospel is true. That's the gospel. Now I want to pause for a minute and I want to warn you. I said it last week, a good shepherd of course, goes into the field before the sheep and he clears out the field of any poisons or anything that could be a harm to the sheep. And I hope to continue to do that. I want to do that here. Uh, There are some things that we have to be careful of when we're looking at the world and the circumstances around us. Number one, moral equivalence. What does moral equivalence mean? Moral equivalence means to find moral responsibility in all parties in all situations, and to make them equal, to find equal moral responsibilities in all parties. It is not divisive to encourage the church to reject philosophies that divide the church. It's not divisive. It's biblical. And a desire to look for all roads to repentance and see all faults on both sides, have you made the murderer equal to the liar? Have you tried to make all equal when the truth is that they are not? God is a just God. All sins, yes, and all sinners take road to hell. But as you read through the Old Testament, and you read, well, as you read through the Bible, God in no way is foolish or presents anything as foolish as uh, the rapist is as equally awful as the gossip. He doesn't. We have to be grounded in truth. And really, it's a philosophy rooted in some pride, isn't it? To see yourself above the situation as the morally superior there to adjudicate. I wrote down too complicated a word. Adjudicate for everyone. To be a judge over everyone. Truth is not based on equality. Finding equality in the whole situation and putting everybody on the same scale is not righteousness. Truth is based upon the holiness of God's character. And God specifically talks about the man who lies with false scales, who tilts the scales. Judge rightly. Who is wrong? Who is right? Who is against the word of God? 
Number two, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Let's not do that. The social justice system is fraught with error. But justice is not wrong. God is just. God values justice. God will permeate his justice throughout all of eternity. Racism and its terms are being changed right now before our eyes, and they are abused to become and becoming full of errors. But racism still does exist. It does. And it must be spoken against, and we must speak against it. Number three, disregarding all self-examinations. You know, sometimes when the other side of the coin is so just wildly off and they are accusing you of things that are just so baseless, you just tend to say, well, you know what, just you're, you're an idiot and I'm walking away. I'm not even going to think about this anymore. We have to be careful of that. We have to be careful. A wise man always falls upon the cross and the Holy Spirit to reveal any sin that may interfere in his communion with God and with his church family. We always have to take a moment to self-examine. Look at Moses. Remember when the people of Israel would come and they would attack him? What would he do? He would say, come, we'll go stand before God and we will let him judge. We will see what God says. Did he defend himself for their foolishness? No, he said, come, let's go, and we will let God examine me. Next, it's a difficult one, but the Black Lives Matters organization, BLM, has become its refrain. What a sinister use of terms. Of course, black lives matter. The fact that we even have to define it that way is foolishness. They are made in the image of God. The fact that we separate them in some way to value them as some sort of separate genos in a varied scale is wickedness. The phrase itself carries with it racist implications. Many Christians right now are marching under the organization banner without recognizing the anti-Christian nature of the Black Lives Matters organization. The founders are admitted on TV in front of everybody consistently that they are Marxists. Marxism is a evil and wicked beyond political philosophy. It is pure evil and it is very unbiblical. They call for national defunding of police against God's ordained law of Romans 13. They mean to dismantle the definition of gender. They are pro-trans, pro-homosexual, anti-heterosexual normative thinking. They mean to dismantle, in their statement, the nuclear family, God's nuclear family. They intentionally and openly divide humanity based upon skin pigmentation. They attempt to portray some people as victims and others as oppressors. And people who see the world as oppressors and victims only, the only logical direction is to become the oppressor. That's the only way to freedom, isn't it? If there's only victims and oppressors, well, I have to become the oppressor. Their goal is the transfer of power. Do not be fooled by them. We should not, as Christians, be linked to or find ourselves unequally yoked with such darkness in any way. We should not be connected to them in any way. Another quote from Samuel Say, I thought he gave a very good example that will highlight this. 
He said, as a pro-lifer, would you support saying, I'm for Planned Parenthood? Would you? Meaning, you support couples planning and preparing for having children. That's a good thing, isn't it? Would you? No. You wouldn't. Why? Because while the slogan is true, it is too close to Planned Parenthood, the organization which we abhor. We are the purveyors of truth. To the Jew and to the Greek, to the slave and to the free, to the church and to the world. We cannot rebuke the church and stay silent to the world. Finally, last thing to be watchful for. Our method and our solution has not changed. Our immutable God gave us the solution in Genesis chapter 3. He gave us the gospel written upon every page of the Old Testament, clarified in the New Testament, finally ended and revealed fully in Revelation, and then lived out in eternity in heaven with his people. We have the solution from an immutable, unchanging God. He is not changing the solution for the church or for his people because the world has construed some new figurative thing, some new problem. The solution is the gospel. The action of the gospel is the church lived out obediently. If we examine our church and we say in the light of current events and we examine ourselves and we say, yes, we, we have sins. If we do that, if we say we have sins and we should examine, then we should repent. Go back to Scripture. Go back to Scripture and obey what we are to be as a church and as a person. Nothing less, nothing more. Check Scripture. Have I sinned? Repent. Go back to Scripture. Do we believe sola scriptura? John MacArthur said this. He said, social justice is a significant shift, and I'm convinced it's a shift that is moving many people off message and onto a trajectory that many other movements and denominations have taken before, always with spiritually disastrous results. This recent detour in quest of social justice is, I believe, the most subtle and dangerous threat so far. He said that back in 2018. So what are our actions? What do we do? Do you feel helpless sometimes? Yes, I do. Sometimes. What do we do? Number one, self-examine. Repent. What a grace we have that we can repent. Amen? Amen. So self-examine and repent for the truth, real sins. Don't fabricate sins to appease something in you, to make you feel better. Real things. You can't see it? Ask the Holy Spirit to help you, to reveal these things to you. We do not fabricate sins. Well, then I guess you can repent for lying. But real things, things you've done, things in your heart. Practical, modern definition of of racism I can give you here. Maybe this will be helpful. It says, a more specific form of partiality 
using predominantly skin tonal variations as a means of hindering my ability to serve or love any person the way that God decrees I should, whether that be by passive indifference or intentional anger and hatred. So examine yourself. You remember the passage. You remember the parable of Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan. You remember this passage? The man beaten on the side of the road, a priest walks by, passes around him. Then a Levite walks by, passes around him. And then the Good Samaritan comes by and he sees him. It doesn't say anything about skin color there, though it is the same issue, partiality. Those men saw him as unworth their time. Anything in your life that prevents you from loving somebody the way that God decrees. Self-examine and repent. Number two, be grounded in the word of God. I said it last week. Brothers and sisters, put on your armor. God gave us armor. He didn't say put on your scholar's cloak and your reading glasses. He said put on your sword and your shield and your breastplate and your helmet. Put these things on. Brothers and sisters, be grounded in the word of God. It is a spiritual and a physical war in this world. You feel like you don't know what to say? Do you feel like that? Are you scared to say anything? Then proclaim what he says. Proclaim what the Bible says. Proclaim what God says and die on that hill. Greg Morris, he's a staff writer at Desiring God, he said it this way. He said, while the sons of hell spew their heresies into the microphone without censure, must the sons of God be kept to inside voices? Can Christians never reprove, rebuke, or exhort? Is nothing at stake but impropriety? This world is furious. And it's looking to exercise its desire to pillage, to plunder, to ensnare all that it can. Right now, they are lacking in direction, and they still feed on themselves at times. They're still attacking within. Historically, a common enemy is needed, and that has often been defined well enough yet for this movement. They haven't found themselves a common enemy. The world has not found itself a common enemy. But one common enemy that they have is Christianity. And it's called to holiness as well. And their mutual hatred for God. And once that coalesces, once they figure that out, and once they find and redirect all of that sin towards an anger of God and his people, brothers and sisters, if you are not grounded in God's word, you will be tossed to and fro. Nate Pickowitz, he said this. He said, the church needs more dangerous men. Not immature, not unstable, not pugnacious or unloving. Rather, godly men whose allegiance is to Christ and the truth. Next. Pray. How? Just pray? Pray. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, he says this. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, 
for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know, we are tempted, and I am very tempted. Um, there's a part of me that wants to just go into the woods sometimes and put on a fur jacket and pray for snow, you know? Um, I wouldn't be alone. My sons would be right behind me. I'm sure of it. But we are tempted to just run away from politics, to eschew politics as matters of this world, and we are not of this world, right? Well, that's not us. That's them, you know, and we'd like to give to Caesars what is Caesars, and we kind of abandon it. And there is some truth in the sense that we are not emotionally attached to it. But yet God calls us to be salt and light, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Doesn't he? He tells us here to pray for our leaders, to pray for our kings. Politics are actions associated with the governance of a country and people. There are in our day moral as well as fiscal policies to be uh, played out. Therefore, when moral policies and principles are in play, we must assess these moral principles and intrude into those principles the light of the gospel, the light of Scripture, the light of God's holiness. We must. We must pray. We must be the light that invades the dark. We must be the salt that stings the festering wounds of sin and preserves this world. We must be the voice, like John the Baptist, that calls the Herods of this world to account. Next, we must actively and intentionally love our neighbors. If the gospel is real, we must live it out. Do you pause and lift those dying from the ground and love them? Or do you stand over them and their bleeding bodies pointing out that the cause for their pain and their blood is their own fault? Or do you pick them up like the Good Samaritan, put them on your own donkey and pay, pay for their well-being? The world has methods, protests, riots, legislations, laws, media, and, but God has defined our method. Our method is love. That's our method. That's what wins. Have compassion. Have compassion. Are you always looking to correct somebody and say, well, you've got yourself into this situation yourself? <laughs> it's your fault? Do you read the news and all the situations going on and have no compassion? Have compassion for those who are hurting. Listen. Do you listen? How can we listen? Can we find ways to listen? Can we intrude ourselves into the lives of those around us and ask them if we can listen? My mother-in-law. She used to tell me, she used to tell me, she said, Tim, Tim, you're not white, you're my son. And she would come around the corner and say, oh, you're really Filipino, huh? Because she would see me eating all her food. <laughs> I didn't get this big on accident. <laughs> you may have had some friends who say things like that to you. Maybe you've had some friends say things to you like, oh, you're not really, you're not really black. You're not really, uh, you're really black like me or you're not really white or whatever. You may have had some friends say things like that to you. And she was right. Your friends are right. 
I'm not white. I'm the Lord's. I'm my mother-in-law's. I'm my mother's. I'm my wife's. I'm a son of God made in his image. Why do they say that? Why do do people say things like that? Maybe they've said it to you. Why would they say something like that to you? Because there is love between us. There is love between you that disregards anything that separates you. That says, you and your family and your culture, you're loud and your music is loud and you're exuberant and you're bright and wow, I love that. I'm not like that, but man, I love that about you. I look at everything that is different about you and I say, wow, look at how God made you. And I love it. And I encourage it. And I'm blessed by it. And I'm not afraid of it. Finally, let's give grace and mercy to our brothers and sisters in Christ who differ. Let's not get lost in secondary issues. Let's not throw brothers and sisters into hell in our minds over things that are not gospel things. Somebody wavers, somebody differs. Uh, They believe one thing, you believe another. They want to wear a mask, you don't, whatever it may be. Allow for some liberty. Allow for some grace and kindness. I may rebuke. I may reprove. I may stand in the face of somebody like Paul did to Peter to correct them. But let's not cast others who have borne fruits in their lives so quickly away. Let's pray for them. And remember, God is sovereign, isn't he? God is sovereign. Press ahead. And maybe prayerfully be wise enough to know that whether this is something that God is going to sort out with them, not with you. Maybe the right response, and be wise. Maybe the right response is to say something for the sake of others around Or maybe the right response is, let me love this brother or sister and pray for them. Let me make them a meal. Let me tell them how much I value them. So let me end on this and encourage you. J.C. Ryle, he said this. He said, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think that they have enough. A cheap Christianity, which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. And it's something that I have learned uh, from practicing jujitsu these years. Uh, we, we call it a brotherhood. It's very much an example of phileo, uh, that Greek kind of militaristic brotherhood. And I've asked myself the question, why? Because so many of the people who practice it treat it in a very religious manner. And I asked myself why, and I paid attention. Well, there's three things that make it like that. Well, one, uh, in jiu-jitsu, the people there that practice it, they have a unified goal. They want to not get hurt by each other. <laughs> we have a unified goal to practice this art form. Uh, two, we have a unified suffering. We're all in there going through the same pain together. And three, we put our lives in each other's hands. I put my body in this large man's hands. They put their lives in my hands, trusting that you are not only protecting yourself, but protecting me. Do you see that? 
That's what we are to be as a church. That's how we become a gospel church. Do we have a unified goal? Yes, the glory of God. Do we suffer together? All of us, maybe. Do I put my life in the hands of God through his people? Do I? Do I live my life with you, by you, trusting that God has gifted you in my life to care for me? Is there a sacrifice? Will there be pain? Probably. Probably. But let's remember what the Word of God says, and I will charge you this way, the way that Moses charged Israel and the people of, uh, of Israel and Joshua in his final speech, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. He said this. He said, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Brothers and sisters, be strong in that world lost are still our brothers and sisters that need to hear the gospel. And by God's grace, he's using your voice to call out to them. Be strong and courageous, not afraid. Because as Numbers 14, 20 said, in the most emphatic way when God spoke to the people, after they had sinned and he came down to rebuke them, he said it with this such Vitality and emphasis. Numbers chapter 14, verse 20, God said, he said, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? The glory of the Lord. Amen. If I could just hold on to that to get me past that eternal river into heaven. I can trust in that. I can hold on to that. As truly as my God lives, he's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ. Oh, dare I say the sweetest name, but holy rest on Jesus' name. Oh, on Christ, the solid rock, Lord, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground a sinking sand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That, Lord, you will not forsake us. Help us to glorify your name in this life. In your sweet name, I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.